Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science embed into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature species invasion, cosmetic nuclear medicine, and erotic fossils. And now, here's the news with Julianne Popple. US Air Force has created a Spider-Man wall-climbing backpack. The Utah State University Ascending Aggies were a team that created a vacuum-based backpack with suction gloves as an answer to an Air Force 90-foot wall-climbing competition, where they beat out 33 other climbing devices, according to Just Cool News. They also earned an additional $100,000 grant to continue working on their device. Their 48-pound personal vacuum-assisted climber, PVAC, is designed to strap to the back of a brave soldier for the vertical trek up and down the wall and can support weights of up to 700 pounds. So if you can picture this, it's a backpack, it's got power, it's got pneumatics, and it's got attachments that you put in front of your hands that suck the wall. Now, there's a video online you can have a look at, and what you'll find is that it's really, really noisy. It's so noisy, you're not going to sneak up on anyone. Spider-Man is not in the field yet. Scientists from the University of Sydney's medical school have discovered a secretive and exotic species of mosquito that, unlike others, does not require a blood meal to develop a batch of eggs. They also found that this species, rather than breeding in ponds and pools like most other species has adapted to live underground in septic tanks and disused stormwater pipes. Study leader Cameron Webb said, The curious biological trait of this underground-dwelling mosquito shows that people in cities need to take mosquitoes' amazing adaptability into account when designing water storage systems. They've also learnt that this species, Culix molestus, an Australian species, is able to undergo a process called autogeny, which means that the female can actually develop and lay a batch of eggs using nutrients that she stored early in her life cycle before she was an adult flying mosquito. This this phenomenon has been observed in other species of mosquito, but it's the first time it's been observed in an Australian species. The really unusual thing about Culix molestus is that the mosquito will not take a blood meal until it's laid its first batch of eggs. After it's laid its first batch of eggs, then it will go in search of a blood meal. The major implication of this study is that we need to be mindful of the mosquito's adaptability when designing sewage and water storage systems under our cities. And can I just ask you, if it doesn't get a blood meal, Mm. that means it doesn't bite people, doesn't it? Because it doesn't need a blood meal. Yes, but what 
what seems to be the case is that after it's laid the first batch of eggs, then it really craves that bond meal and will go in search of it. You see, once it's used up that stored protein or energy that it would have gathered from earlier in its life cycle, you know, when they're still wrigglers swimming around in the ponds, it would feed and gain store up energy and then use this process of autogeny to then use that energy as an adult to make a first batch of eggs, but then they would have used up that energy. So it's so only to, the first time. So it's only the first batch of eggs, and then they start feeding. So there's still it's still an issue for these uh, for this species in that they're still feeding on people, and this is one species. All other species will be feeding on us straight away. And the Latin name of this mosquito? Culex molestus, yes. That's an interesting name. It's an interesting name. I'm, I'm not... Um, not sufficiently knowledgeable in my, uh, well, I don't know enough about Latin to know the exact uh, derivation or why it's called molestus. But I imagine, if you think about uh, in the English sense of molestation, to harass, I imagine its origins are related to that. Just imagine Harry Potter using that spell. (laughs) (laughs) Marco Manriquez has created the Burrito Bot a 3D printer that prepares edible burritos within minutes. The burrito bot can make any sort of ingredients as long as it comes through the machine as a paste or it's added by hand. So basically there's the tortilla base and then there's a 3D printer squirting paste on top of that to build up the burrito. Burrito bot is looking for funding on Kickstarter to make a more complete prototype. You can find out more on burritobot.com. That's burrito, B-0-T.com. The burrito bot was designed while Marco was a student at NYU ITP. And the burrito bot currently lives in the NYU ITP lab. Cosmetic nuclear medicine. There are two types of skin cancers. One of them is fatal, and the other one is less likely to be fatal. And the less likely to be fatal one are basal cell carcinomas. Now, if basal cell carcinomas appear on your face, they can be really, really distressing, even if they don't kill you. Now, normally, you'd have to do some sort of extreme radiation or chemotherapy, but at the Society of Nuclear Medicine's annual meeting, a group of researchers presented a patch with phosphorus-32, a radioactive isotope used to treat some types of cancer. It's nuclear medicine to make your face prettier. They found that when the patch was applied for three hours, and then for another three hours, four and seven days later, when biopsies were taken three months after treatment, or ten patients, it's a very small study, They showed no traces of their tumours. When the biopsies were performed again at six months, the basal cell carcinomas had returned in two of the ten patients. So larger studies will need to be performed, but basically the idea of having a mildly radioactive patch applied for a short period of time seems to be a good way to treat non-fatal skin cancer. Scientists from the University of Tübingen in Germany have discovered fossilised turtles in the act of sex. These fossils were discovered in Messelpit in Germany. This site was once a quarry, mined for oil and shale, 
but has in recent years become one of the richest sites in the world for understanding the living environment of the Eocene period, which was between 57 million and 36 million years ago. This was the period in which mammals began to rule the planet. The two individual turtles are an extinct species, Aliochelis crassusculpta, and it's estimated that these fossils are 47 million years old. Lead researcher Walter Joyce told Live Science, The tails of the partners are aligned with each other. This is the very position in which the tails are held when living turtles mate. This is the first case, uh, this is the first record of vertebrate sex. Well, this is the earliest record known of vertebrate sex. The researchers suggest that the turtles may have been the victim of a build-up of volcanic gases in the lake in which they were swimming during their ill-fainted amorous encounter 47 million years ago. Mark Changizi, in his book The Vision Revolution, set forth the idea that human colour vision has evolved to give us the best information about reading other people's skin. Skin colour changes are caused by a mixture of more or less blood and blood oxygen levels. So human eyes have evolved to tell you whether someone is blushing, whether they're paling, whether they're sick, whether they're bruised. There's all these different colours that come out in human skin. So how can you use that insight for a product? Well, at 2AI Labs, they're producing social filtered glasses that enhance your colour vision so you can see the blood under the skin more easily. So surgeons could better see a patient's network of glowing veins or airport security people could spot the slight paling of a suspicious individual's face. The idea is, is that these skin colour changes are not just medical indications, but also social signals. So ordinary people may still be able to see common social signals through their dark shades, where at the moment, sunglasses tend to cut out most of the information. So people wearing shades don't need to miss seeing the blush of embarrassment or excitement on the face of a girl or guy on the first date. A poker player hiding behind a pair of sunglasses could still spot a red flush creeping up the neck of an opponent, which could be a telltale sign that could clinch a victory as surely as a five-card flush in the game. 2AI is already talking with bigger companies about making the more specialised glasses for everything from law enforcement to medicine. But Mark Changizi refers to the social glasses as the one-ring-to-rule-them-all approach. The biggest application is for everyday wear just like every pair of glasses you buy has UV protection. Skin reveals so much about humans' emotions and health because it can appear as practically any colour based on combinations of blue, green, yellow and red. So higher amounts of oxygenated blood can lead to a reddish-blue or purple colour, whereas lower amounts of oxygenated blood create a yellow-red, orange effect. High amounts of blood with low oxygen levels lead to a blue-green hue, and low amounts of blood with low oxygen levels, lead to a yellow-green appearance. Tim Barber, an internet entrepreneur and co-director at 2AI, first suggested turning Changizi's insights into a usable technology. But he hopes to do much more than just turn a profit. He wants to experiment with a new way to fund his academic research through rapid spin-off technologies. When you go through PhD training, you're taught 
that to leave academia is to fail. But it's big world that's exciting and often more exciting than what happens in 99% of academia. So you may be able to not only get a better idea of what people are thinking, but you may get a new business model for research. So I don't know if it's just my lack of emotional or observational sensitivity, but I didn't realise there was such a range of colours portrayed in the human face. Would these glasses be able to enhance your ability? Yes. Or just not... Oh, so it's actually enhancing your ability, That's not exactly just right. it works removing the impairment of normally wearing glasses. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is you can filter so that these signals stand out more. For example, if you go to a a public toilet in Australia, a lot of them will have a blue light, which stops you from seeing veins so that if you have diabetes and need to inject, you can't. That's government policy. So as a result, it's the blueness is stopping you seeing the blueness of your Mm -hmm. veins. But if you had, say, more rose-coloured light, then the blue veins would stand out more. The contrast Mm -hmm. would be greater. So this is the opposite of those blue lights. But this isn't a foreseen application of the technology, one would hope. (laughs) Well, it is if you're a doctor. Mm, Because if you need to trace out the veins, the idea is these signals aren't just in the human face, although that's what you see with Mm. people wearing clothes. But if you're a doctor who's examining people who are wearing a bit less, then you can actually see these changes all over their body. So you'll be able to see a vein more easily, or you'll be able to trace the veins if you're trying to see what's wrong with their circulation. So sick people really, really will look green through they these glasses. They generally do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. If you see a bruise, what colour is it? That's true. It is a little bit yellow and green, yeah. Yeah, depending on how old the bruise is and what stage of healing it's at. That's very true. Mm, all the colours are there. And this explains why our colour vision is so narrowly defined in the range of colours that human skin can express Mm. and not very much outside of that. So although the world has lots of colours, we really see a very sharp, narrow little band of them and we don't see the rest. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And next, Victoria Bond spoke to Dr Simon Pooley, an environmental historian at the University of Oxford, about last week's conference at the University of Sydney, Rethinking Invasive Ecologies. Today I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Simon Pooley, an environmental historian currently at St. Anthony's College of Oxford University. Simon is currently in Sydney to attend the University of Sydney's conference, Rethinking Invasion Ecologies. Can you tell me a little bit about what this conference was trying to establish? It gathered together a group of scholars from the, mainly the humanities and social sciences, 
all of us interested in the ways in which different kinds of, as it turned out, many plants uh, have traveled to new places and in some cases uh, taken over local environments. And we were looking at the um, environmental impacts, cultural impacts, and the economic impacts of these kinds of changes. And so we were talking a little bit earlier about the definition of an invasive species. I, I was asking you whether it's something that, that has a relation to human actions or if it's something that an external species coming to a new environment. It does seem that uh, the, most of these plants, in fact all of the ones that we focus on, have been plants that have been introduced by humans. Uh, and obviously because of, well, I suppose it was an Australian conference really, um, it was about plants that had been brought here and things like prickly pear, um, we were really focused on yeah, human, human introduced plants that have then run away with themselves or taken over environments in ways in which uh, those humans hadn't originally uh, envisioned them doing. So does this include um, even species that were desirable in a new environment? Are they still considered invasive species? Hmm. That's a good question. And I'd say no. I mean, invasive species is a overridingly negative term. Um, I can't think of any of these plants that we discussed that were desirable, no. It's a plant succeeding. In a sense, these plants were brought in and it was hoped they would succeed. So it's, it's, um, it's perverse in some ways that, that they have succeeded actually so well. Uh, there was a, a good quote by a, a farmer from up in the north who came to one of these eradication events um, and said he was sick and tired of trying to kill the things that did grow and grow the things that didn't want to. Uh, so I suppose that's, yeah, that's one take on it. And is it still an invasive species if it doesn't necessarily pose a threat to indigenous species? Technically, it's an invasive species if it's spreading beyond the bounds of where it's wanted, really. Although that does, uh, there is a value judgment about whether it's um, interfering with other plants or local ecosystems. And, and, and I suppose that can be both ecologically and, or aesthetically. And, and your paper focused on the idea of scale within, um, with, within the idea of an invasive species. Can you mm. elaborate a little bit about what that means? The, yeah, the question of scale, there's two ways, two ways that ecologists think of scale in particular, and that's over time and, and spatially. And how far, you know, um, within a continent, for instance, how far must a species uh, move before it becomes invasive? Um, the example in my paper, I was looking at uh, allegations that saltwater crocodiles are now invading new river systems and places where they aren't and shouldn't be. Um, but if you think about scale over time, crocodiles have been on Earth for 
probably 230 million years, 80 million in their current uh, body form. So it's very hard to say where they belong and where they don't belong. Uh, it's very likely that crocodiles have lived in all many parts of Australia they don't uh, inhabit now. So very often um, our experience of an environment is very short term. Perhaps even in a lifespan, the famous uh, American ecologist, uh, Aldo Leopold, died fighting a fire which was threatening some trees that grew on his small holding. Now he knew very well that those trees would come back. They were adapted to fire, but they wouldn't come back in his lifetime. So, you know, you, you also, we were also looking at the cultural dimensions of this, and you can't discount those dimensions either. That does also matter and influence our judgments. Can you expand a little bit on this idea of cultural judgments? Hmm. Um, plants, plants were introduced for different reasons, sometimes uh, ornamental, sometimes to, uh, to improve landscapes. Um, thinking of examples uh, in South Africa, my native South Africa, uh, a lot of Australian plants were introduced, and they were introduced for a variety of reasons, for timber, for stabilization of sands on the Sandy Cape Flats. Well, we're in an interesting situation now because um, post the 1990s anyway, there's a great focus on preserving the indigenous biota, the biodiversity of the indigenous uh, species. And so conservationists on the Cape would like to remove everything that is not native. This would mean um, all the trees, more or less. There aren't naturally trees there, or very few. And so that comes into conflict with um, people who uh, like to use the peninsula for recreation. That would mean no shade, no shelter from the wind. And there are um, the remains of plantations which are used of pine trees and gums which are no longer used for timber but there are very long-standing places, venues for people to walk their dogs, go running. So people are very unhappy about, uh, so perhaps you could say well, middle class and up people are in the southern suburbs would like to hang on to those. They're quite happy for the um, more weedy, scrubby, uh, hackiers and things to go. Um, but poor people actually use those for a great many things. They use them for building materials, they use them for fuel, they use them for selling to rich people, for firewood, for their barbecues. So we have there already just three different sets of people that value those plants in, in very different ways. And those plants, some of those plants are invasive. Um, yeah, but I suppose those are three examples. Yeah, despite the fact that they were introduced, they do p play an important part now in, within the ecosystem. Yes, they do. Um, there is this question we touched on briefly, that in some cases, introduced plants can play or can replace indigenous plants and in playing a stabilizing role, for instance, in sandy areas and 
um, preventing erosion. So then the question is, is it really about the ecosystem services or the, the, the good that that provides for you? Or is it actually something else? Is it really some ad- cultural idea of what belongs and what doesn't? And that's a different idea altogether. I do know that studying ecology as a lowly undergrad in biology in Canada, we, we were taught that invasive species were very threatening because they tended to um, create a much more fragile ecosystem in that there was less variety, and so it was much less flexible and adaptable to, to various catastrophes. Is that, um, is that something that is still considered uh, factual or...? <laughs> It's a very strong argument, and it's, it's still made by many conservation ecologists. I think there is debate, actually. Um, there, has been, there has been some serious questioning of the idea that heterogeneous systems are necessarily more resilient. Um, I suppose, certainly, if you extend the argument to things like food crops... You could see the strength of that argument because if you only grow one kind of rice and some kind of uh, disease comes in, then you're in, it can wipe out an entire food resource and there'll be no, no backups. But um, it's not... I think there is... I think it is debated. I don't think it's entirely accepted that um, more complex systems are necessarily more resilient systems. Well, thank you very much for coming to Sydney, Dr. Pooley. Thank you. That was Dr. Simon Pooley speaking with Victoria Bond about invasive species. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com, that's diffusion at 2SCR.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SCR studios. Or, if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popple and Victoria Bond. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>